Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and welcome to The Emerald. We'll start today with a story from Alexeyev Mikhail, an old Yakut man from Siberia, and here he's quoted in Joseph Campbell's Masks of God. Here's what he says. I remember how, in the old days, the shamans bellowed during the seance like bulls, and there would grow from their heads pure, opaque horns. I once saw such a thing myself. There used to live in our village a shaman whose name was Connor. When his older sister died, he shamanized. When he did so, horns grew on his head. He stirred up the dry clay floor with them and ran about on all fours, as children do when they play bull. So I want to take a look at how the modern mind processes a story like this. Most likely, we would look at an experience like this and conclude one of several things. One, that everyone who saw those horns was under the influence of strong entheogenic substances. Or two, they were possibly psychotic, having some kind of psychosis, psychotic experience. Or three, they really wanted to believe the horns were there, so they saw them. Or four, they lied about seeing the horns, they made the whole thing up. Well, what if the people in question were not actually under the influence of any substances, nor were they psychotic? What if these people, in fact, had a very clear conception of psychosis, and none of them who saw the shaman grow horns met the definition of psychotic? And what if they weren't lying at all? or necessarily wanting to believe anything in particular, where does that leave us? Well, of course, there is one final option, that Connor did, in fact, grow horns from his head. Pure, opaque horns. But there aren't very many who would believe that these days, now are there? Today on The Emerald, The Case of the Man Who Grew Horns Imagination as a Driving Force of the Human Experience There is another option, of course, that the people in question fundamentally experience the world differently than we do, that they had access to a vision space that is all but missing from the modern mind, but that the ancient mind was verily steeped in. This vision space was available, real, discreet, detailed, as intricate as a lucid dream, as the cellular structure of a leaf, as a Tibetan mandala. 
and we don't miss it or see it as vitally important because it's like a relative that we never knew we had, gone out of mind and memory. Another Tungus man tells of a common vision among Siberian people, that of a tall tree, a larch, where shamans live in nests. The higher the nest, the more powerful the shaman. You listen to the people of the area speak about this tree, and they certainly don't seem like they're spinning a tall tale. They speak of it matter-of-factly, as if, yeah, everybody knows about that tree. The man describes his brother being taken high up the tree, so high he can see the branches reaching all the way to heaven. On every branch there is a nest as large as a haystack covered with snow. His brother is placed in the highest nest, and after he is laid there to rest, a flying white reindeer arrives from above, settles on the nest, and offers the brother her teats to suckle on. He remains there for three years, and the more he sucks from the reindeer's udders, the smaller his body becomes, until finally he is no bigger than a thimble. What can we take from a story like this, and from knowing that stories like this and the experiences that they spring from were totally common across the ancient world, and still survive in cultures whose lifestyles are closer to the way things were for most of human history. Well, we can conclude that imagination, the creative visioning of the world, and the direct experience of a deeper, intuitive, creative, visionary world that lives parallel, above, or overlapping our world, has been very, very central to people for a very long time. And we're not talking about random experience by a few freak members of society. We're talking about the cultural centering of the imagination. The cultural centering of this vision space. Centering to such a degree that the imaginer, the voyager, the visionary, is often the one determining the future, passing on to the children, shaping history, and the whole community shares in it. They all see the horns. Sure, it bends our minds a little. It's supposed to. It's supposed to get us out of the mind that would want to say, were there really nests in those trees? Or really, flying reindeers? Or humans can't shrink to the size of a thimble? It's supposed to shake us into a different mind. Can we even conceive of this mind? Can we place ourselves in it for even an instant? The truth is that we have very little idea, within the overall context of postmodernism, in which we live fractured from meaningful and prolonged interaction with wilderness, in a society in which we center the left-brain pursuits, in which intuition is not a muscle that is actively flexed, in which visions are associated with mental disturbance, in which senses are dulled through bad diet and lack of exercise and lack of tuning of our mental acuity as it relates to nature, we have little to no grasp or understanding of how Paleolithic and Neolithic peoples experience the world. Yet their unique perception is exactly the force that shaped humanity until very, very recently. Imagine for a moment that your ancestors lived at Trois Frères Cave in France, or at Tong Tian Dong in western China, or at Blombos in South Africa. Imagine that they lived there for a thousand generations. 
Imagine what the combination of being immersed in wilderness, among forces so much stronger than themselves, dependent upon seasonal plants and herd migrations, was like for them. Try having what you eat, and when you eat, and how much you eat, at the mercy of the forces of nature for a year. That prolonged deprivation is a recipe for attaining the trance state. Add to that other periods of long deprivation, cold, heat, involuntary fasting. Add to that hunting runs that could take weeks within the ongoing state of runner's high. Well, anyone can see how these experiences would take one into the trance state. Here's a clip of a conversation I had with mythologist Joseph Sansonese about Paleolithic peoples and the trance state. So, um, you know, I, I share your understanding and study and speculation about, say, Paleolithic human beings who exist for tens and tens of thousands of years. And it seems to me that we have a tendency to judge them by what we know of their material stone implements or when you consider the degree to which they were absorbed in nature, they must have had direct contact and somewhat easy access to these deeper states of being. Yeah, I, I, I'm firmly convinced that they were uh, naturally, they naturally, they easily passed into trance state. Um, much more than we saw. The, the greatest obstacle to passing into trance is the discursive quality of the, of the intellect, what I call voiceless speech. Anybody who's tried to meditate for five minutes knows that that is the problem. There's this constant chatter going on in your head, and it's in words. It's in words. There's no doubt about it. And we call it, psychologists call it voiceless speech, and it, and it is reinforced by everything around us, television, magazines, books, the internet. Everything is, is these symbols. Right, and we think in them, and we emote in them, and everything like that. So we are, have a huge obstacle to overcome. That I would say the Paleolithic man, as you say, or even Neolithic man, did not have. They understood that access to the mental realm was access to a different form of reality. It wasn't a subsidiary reality that was nested inside of our head. It was a different reality. So you might say, my ancestors spend a lot of time in the trance state, so what? Well, what if the experiences one has of the world in that state, creative, intuitive, visionary, ecstatic, transcendent, connected, empathetic, what if these are valuable or even essential to human society at large? What if they serve direct evolutionary purpose? Generally, we don't think of it this way. When we hear of shamans' nests and horns, we lump it together as part of a worldview that was fine then, but it's not really relevant now. Well, for today, let's think of it a different way. As a kid, science was absolutely convinced that Homo sapiens had only been around for, at most, 35,000 years. This is what we were taught in anthropology class. A few short years later, and the date is now 350,000 years. 
with some anthropologists saying it may be as long as 600,000 years. So let's take 350,000 years as a starting point, even though it's probably going to keep getting pushed back. Large-scale agricultural society starts about 7,000 years ago, and the Industrial Revolution starts 300 years ago. This means that 98% of the history of the human race is Paleolithic. It means that 98% of your ancestors dwelled in the dream time of the animal herd, the cave, the hunt, the fire circle, the vision, the pure and opaque horns. So yes, how 98% of human beings for 98% of human history experienced the world and what they considered vital is absolutely relevant. Let's also talk about cultural success. There was 20,000 years of cultural continuity at the Trois Frères Cave in France. For 20,000 years, things were pretty much the same. You sat at the same fire pit that your father sat at, and his father, and his mother, and her mother, and on and on, back, over a thousand mothers. You gazed out at the same herds of wild aurochs, and ibex, and elk, and mammoth that they did, across a long, antlered river of memory and continuity. Fast forward then to us. In several hundred years, less than 2% of that time of cultural continuity at that one cave, modern human beings have taken the world from the pre-industrial age to the brink of global environmental collapse. Yes, you might say, but we have long lifespans and iPhones and Arby's and don't have to worry about a saber-toothed tiger or even an impacted wisdom tooth killing us. Trust me, I'm grateful for these things just like everyone else is. I mean, all these things except Arby's. I'm not trying to send us back to some romanticized Paleolithic era. All I'm saying is that our assumptions of cultural superiority and success when the technologies and industries we have created have also brought us to the verge of planetary collapse and record time, may need to be revisited. We may not be able to claim our modern culture or its methods as the most successful the planet has ever known if that culture seemingly can't last more than a few hundred years without bringing the whole planet down with it. And so, it is sometimes worth asking, what are other ways of seeing this world? What, perhaps has been lost. It's no secret that along with technological progress has come a deep bifurcation of our relationship with nature. Lucid experiences of oneness have been relegated to the domain of artists and outcasts and possibly heretics. Along the way, both Western religion and Western science recast intuition and vision and the trance state experience through ritual as dangerous or pathological or at the very least, irrelevant. It's not necessarily an accident that as a worldview grew that decentered this state, humanity's fundamental sense of connectedness to the natural world around us also changed. The overall trend over the years, particularly in Western culture, has been the whittling away of the importance of the visionary, the importance of the dreamer, the importance of the trance state. But what if, historically, it's fundamentally more inherently human to see those horns than it is to doubt them. For 98% of our history, perhaps, we immersed in and relished the vision space, 
this is what it meant to be human, to see the horns. I know that the ability to doubt and to scientifically evaluate has made a tremendous difference in human history. It helps us question religious power structures that have been based on superstition and fear. It helps us evaluate problems without the bias of personal feeling. But could it be that we lose something when we deem that the only permissible lens through which to see the world? It's impossible to count the studies that are coming out now that are reinforcing what human beings have really known all along. Sitting around a fire lowers the blood pressure. Forest bathing calms the mind. Meditation works. Indigenous diets of whole foods are the healthiest. Walking barefoot has numerous effects on the brain. Learning happens best through tactile contact with the earth. Interaction with irregular shapes i.e. the forms found in nature, is vital for brain development. Art is evolutionarily essential for humanity, and on and on. After years of denial, science has finally come around to the Gaia hypothesis, which indigenous peoples have known all along. The notion that the Earth is as one connected organism. There was a great piece on this in the New York Times last month. Scientists who used to scoff at indigenous elders' claims of being able to speak with animals are now learning from these same elders seeking to understand, for example, the deep knowledge that the Inuit have of whales. We'll have more on this in a coming episode. Ultimately, we can listen and value science as it informs us about climate and ecology and our place in it, but we also shouldn't need scientific studies to remind us of our interconnectedness, just as our interconnectedness should not simply live in our brains as an interesting fact. This is the crux of it. We need to feel it. We need to center again those practices that help us not only to be able to evaluate and intellectually understand nature as outside observers, but to feel nature and know nature directly and know our place within it and its place within our hearts. This is the value that the lucid state that our ancestors swam in has for us today the ability to imagine our way forward across the challenges that we face. As many of you know, I'm a writer. I also sometimes go on trail runs in the mountains. The meditative state of the trail run, in which there is repetition, exertion, and also one-pointed focus, is very akin to the trance state. Sometimes it's called the zone. One of the things that I've noticed on the trail is that if I'm struggling in a writing project with a particular plot point or character arc, when I go running, there is some kind of alchemy that happens in which that problem simply disappears. It dissolves. The solution arrives. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it or deliberating about it. It simply goes away. This is a very basic example of solving problems not through thinking or deliberating, but through nature-based, ritualized activity that generates insight. To contrast this, one of the things that I've observed in C-SPAN footage of members of Congress deliberating in committees, for example, 
is how non-conducive the space is to entering a state of connectedness and vision. We shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us, Winston Churchill famously said. There is a stagnancy emanating that's palpable even through the screen, stagnancy of place and sometimes of person, like you want someone or something to come along and shake the cobwebs out of the rug a little bit, which is why sometimes old career politicians are called fossils. This is conversely why elders of many societies were expected to be the most capable of performing the rituals that would take them and the larger society into the trance state. It was expected of leaders that they had access to realms of ecstatic vision, interconnectedness, wonder, hope, lucidity, to be connected, as author Bill Mahoney calls it, to the artful universe, to have access to imagination. When I look at our leadership, let's just say for the most part, I see a vacuum of this artfulness. It's hard to dream when the only thing that matters is money. And who knows, perhaps I'm wrong. Maybe Mitch McConnell actually does spend hours and hours in the lucid state of imaginative vision. But there's a reason why politicians in this country won't even mention the word art or vision or lucidity. The word imagination is dangerous to the current paradigm. Imagination can envision a world beyond the pursuit of capital at all costs. And imagination ultimately can renovate and topple systems that do not work. I'm sure you realize by now that by imagination, I'm not just talking about sitting around and dreaming things up. I'm talking about a state of being and seeing, enhanced by a lifestyle attuned to natural rhythms, usually reached through ritual means such as meditation, ritualized physical activity, vocalization, some form of deprivation. What differentiates this state from just sitting around thinking about things is that it is part of a continuum that includes a feeling of empathetic connectedness. Just thinking things up, detached from a feeling of connection to the ecological and individual outcomes and implications, can lead a person or a society down all kinds of ethically questionable roads. Imagining born from a feeling of empathetic connection has ethics already embedded within it. And this is something we're going to explore a lot on this podcast. It becomes a harmonic outflow rather than an imposed restriction. When we truly feel in our hearts the basic law of interconnectedness, which all the great mystics and now many of the great scientists tell us is indeed the state of things, then actions grow out of an ethics of experience. My hope is that this connected lucidity of the heart ultimately be used to serve society And I'm talking in a more profound way than let ancient mindfulness techniques make you a better capitalist. Imagine, just imagine, what a heart-driven debate would feel like at the highest levels of political office. Consider the radical transformation we could undergo as a society if we started to turn sectors of environmental and urban planning over to panels of true visionaries. Imagine if each place was the responsibility of those who empathetically understood that place. If the plants were in the stewardship of those who intimately knew those plants. If local resources were in the custody of those who were closest to the source of those resources. For hundreds of years, outsiders looked at the Amazon rainforest and were incapable of seeing anything but a jungle. Well, at last... 40-plus scientific researchers now have realized that the Amazon is no jungle. It has been deliberately cultivated for over 8,000 years. 
Scientists now finally see Amazonas less as a jungle and more of a meticulously constructed garden, a vast garden of cultivated Brazil nut and banana, manioc, cacao, rubber, and maripa. Once again, science figuring out what the people have known all along. Well, how about turning the management of this ecosystem over to those who managed it and imagined it for 8,000 years? Imagine that. Here's a quote. The most beautiful and profound feeling we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. It is the sower of all true science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is good as dead. That was Albert Einstein, and in that quote he's laying the common ground that can and must ultimately exist between the artists, the scientist, the politician, and the mystic for a society to move forward with cohesion. The mystic state of connection of which he is speaking is fundamentally different from mediated religious experience in which a priest in power determines who gets to experience what, when. But it's also not random. What we've tended to miss in the West is that the achieving of the mystic state isn't just happenstance. It's not just that random wow we felt that time when looking up at the night sky on that camping trip. That might be a hint of it but it does not speak to the full depths that await through careful cultivation. There are civilizations and cultures in current and recent memory who have understood and cultivated profound access to this mystic state of the imagination. Imaginative Practice In the Siberian cultures, the young acolytes learned how to launch themselves into the spirit world flying on the backs of their drums. If you think this isn't advanced technology, then you haven't been paying attention for 350,000 years, perhaps. Drumming has been the launching pad for many cultural practices of transinduction. Imaginative practice plays a central role in the traditions of South Asia, and because this region never suffered a massive cultural fracture, in which art, spirituality, and science somehow ended up in separate boxes that rarely want anything to do with each other, we can glimpse what it is like when the imaginative state remains central to a society, even as it develops socially, politically, and scientifically. One of the Nayanars, the great medieval mystic poets of South India, speaks directly of the imagination and its place within the cosmos, what he calls the divine energy of the universe, honey flowing through the minds of those who imagine him. Far from having the connotation of fantasy, the word imagination in ancient Tamil and Sanskrit denoted something that was in fact more real than mundane reality, more luminous and divine than that which could be merely thought of or pondered upon. Imagining was a direct bridge, a funneling from the confused world of day-to-day -day thought to the shimmering crystal clarity of the one universal consciousness. Here's a quote from David Shulman's wonderful book More Than Real, in which he describes this imaginative state and the obstacles to getting there. Bhavana, the generative imagination, is where the divine exists, a sweet, delicious existence internal to the practitioners, whose inner space must thus somehow be similarly structured in each case. Can we say something more about this inner space? 
and he's speaking now of the inner state prior to contacting this deliciousness of the imagination. Many have tried. One common way to talk about it, encountered in varying degrees in all the Tamil poets, is as a fragmented, often conflictual zone where the divine hides himself, almost as if to taunt his tormented lover by the very fact of inaccessibility. The language used to describe such states is one of brittleness, heaviness. I am, says Manikava Chakar, a puppet made of iron. Given the human propensity for such states of being, the role of the imagination becomes crucial. It is the mechanism most readily available for de-objectifying, de-solidifying the rough, opaque surfaces of the self and allowing for renewed movement, a honeyed flow. Let's return to those stifling halls of Congress for a moment and just say that the ability of the human being to move beyond the state of being an iron puppet has personal and societal and possibly planetary implications. Tantric practitioners in India and Tibet have harnessed the lucid power of the imaginative consciousness for hundreds upon hundreds of years. The meticulous and glorious tantric constructions of the imagination through meditative practice are some of the most profound work humanity has done within the hollowed spaces of consciousness. The inner world of the tantrika brims with nectar, echoes with thunder, buzzes with the hum of bees and bells and the ring of conch shells, flashes with the bling of divine adornments, echoes with pranic winds, bristles like new sprouts growing from the ash of the cremation ground, as the practitioner harnesses the energetics of color, sound, light, space, direction, architecture, and anthropomorphic shape to bring fullness to the mind and heart. Of course, when colonial-era anthropologists first encountered Tantra, they had absolutely no framework for it, and dismissed it outright as superstition. They had no way of understanding the value of the Tantric ritual they encountered because they had not experienced the decades of practice and the effects of such practice themselves. This is where ultimately the proof is in the experience of the practitioner of the ritual, and not in detached anthropological observation of the ritual. Consider this from the practices of the Tibetan goddess Kurukule. Meditate on a red syllable om in each of your eyes. As these syllables radiate light, the wisdom of great bliss blazes supremely. The blazing light from your eyes pervades all appearances. This light radiates outwards, clearly illuminating everything it touches like the rays of the sun. And within the dome of light that is my heart center... Amid the unchanging point lives the Lord of the Eternal Dance. And rays of yellow light that stream from the God and Goddess in union illuminate the billion-fold universe. Yes, day upon day, month upon month, year upon year of sitting in the meditative state imagining this into being has an effect. Far from daydreaming, it is meticulous construction work. It is the harnessing of imaginative and visionary space for specific result. In the case of the Tibetan Tantra, the refinement of consciousness. Ultimately, this shaping of consciousness serves the ability of the mind to be lucid, bright, clear, strong, permeable, resilient. And how does that serve? What good would it do society to have Mitch McConnell imagining 
beams of light emanating from his eyes and illuminating the billion-fold universe on a regular basis? Well, let's just say that if the Tantras are to be believed, it simply helps people be nice to each other, less enamored of hurling expletives towards one another on the internet, more patient with the ones we love, more attuned, perhaps, to the phases of the moon, more calm, more peaceful, more bright. Imagine that. Our episode today featured references to three books, the Masks of God series by Joseph Campbell, Dakini Activity, The Dynamic Play of Awakening, Dakini is spelled D-A-K-I-N-I, and the author of that is Padmasambhava, the great Tibetan master, and More Than Real by David Shulman. You can find these books in the usual places. And thanks to mythologist Joseph Sansonese, who wrote the book The Body of Myth, for agreeing to let our interview clip be featured in this episode. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's Patreon P A T R E O N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Mm-hmm.